Welcome to Prevention is Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, the podcast which brings you the latest in science and practice and challenging mainstream medicine and finding new and exciting ways of having a happier and healthy life. This series is looking specifically at mental health. We've become really concerned about the lack of translation of what science knows into what medicine does. In most societies, including the one I live in, one in five of us will have a serious mental health problem at some stage. The infrastructure, the practice, the gap between treatment and best practice is massive. This podcast series aims to do something about it. Prevention is cure. I'm your host, Professor Grant Schofield. In this episode, I talked to Josh Darby. Josh is a career firefighter. He's a trauma and psychological injury expert. He's a philosopher, a scientist, uh, and a critical thinker. I first met Josh a few years back through his postgraduate studies at AUT. Uh, He's since become a good friend, a colleague. We've been successful together at getting a big project with Friday Emergency New Zealand through Movember, funded around this area of psychological injury and well-being. His knowledge and lived experience around trauma and psychological injury are real, helpful, insightful, It's an area that I've learned a tremendous amount about and frankly, as a former psychologist, surprised I knew virtually nothing about. Uh, It's really the the pointy end of psychology, well-being, uh, the idea that we're all going to be exposed to these psychological events that overwhelm us and whether we can see our way through to post-traumatic growth or that we stay overwhelmed and can't process and turn away, not towards facing up to what's happened and end up with these psychological injuries and trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder and the like. Uh, Interesting, you're going to find this, if you don't know anything about the area, really interesting and really insightful. If you're already in the area, it'll take you to the next level. Enjoy. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight Okay, we're here with Josh Darby, firefighter, philosopher, scientist, practitioner. Hey, Josh. Hey, Grant. Certainly the first thing. I don't know about all those other ones. Yeah, right. So you've been interested in psychological injury, trauma, that sort of stuff for a while. Tell us about your history and how you came to that. Yeah, so, I mean, if we we take it right back, um, I grew up in a little place called Kaihu. It was a river that ran around the campground that my um, parents built there. And so had my first kind of time on the water catching eels. And then uh, when I was about eight or nine, we moved up to the Whangaparoa Peninsula, also renowned for its uh, waters for fishing. And uh, I was going to school at the local school there in Silverdale. And at the top of the hill was a local volunteer fire brigade. And so that was kind of my entry into um, service as a volunteer firefighter at that time. As a, as a teenager? As a teenager, 16 years of age, the local volunteer fire brigade, they came down, they were a bit short of uh, firefighters, volunteer firefighters. And so they had this genius idea to recruit um, us, and that was to bring down two fire engines. 
start up a big water fight and um, and then get us over the line, you know. And so it worked. I mean, I was straight in there in the water fight. Um, what really got me over the line, though, and I, I tell this story, it's kind of funny, is one of the firefighters came up to me and held a uh, black pager up and said, um, Josh, if you, if you join up, become a volunteer firefighter, you get one of these pages, and whenever it goes off, you can leave school. And I'm 16, just not loving school. And so I'm like, sweet, where do I sign up? Like, yeah, if there was a mission that that could happen in the middle of the night. And... Well, it actually happened during my end of year exams. And I was like, it went off and I was like, hallelujah, <laughs> straight out there. I can't remember what the call was, but uh, I made sure we took the long way back, maybe stopped off at Macca's on the way home. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and things changed in Fire Emergency New Zealand, who you still currently work for. Actually, we should get that out of the way, right? So I think we wanted to say that. Yeah. While you work for fire emergency, what you've got to say here will may not necessarily reflect. Yeah, I'm still I'm still an operational firefighter, still um, with fire and emergency, but you know what I what I say is kind of my own opinion and not necessarily um, reflective of the organisation. Although I'm sure they agree with much of what I say. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, so I was a volunteer for a couple of years until I was 18, um, and I actually finished school, went to university, and hated university. I got sick in my second semester. Uh, I think I was, I think in part it was just, I was studying something that was more of my father's interest, you know, trying to follow in his footsteps. I hadn't really figured out at that stage what I was interested in. So I was kind of C's and D's. And uh, fortunately, as life would have it, um, I got sick, couldn't finish the semester. And uh, I was working as a pool lifeguard at the time. And my uh, my supervisor was an ex-career firefighter. He said, mate, you should, you should give career firefighting a go, you know, become a full-time firefighter. So... Yeah, I did. I applied when I was 18 and was accepted. Spent three months down in uh, Rota Vegas, as we affectionately call it, and uh, did my training as a, become a, a career firefighter. So I came off the trucks a few um, weeks ago to um, work on a secondment. So yeah, that's, that's pretty exciting. And the project's around, the Fenona Tunga program is around Wellbeck. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, obviously, that's my background into firefighting and, and the job and really enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, my interest in well-being and, and psychology and what's led to what we're doing now with this project kind of came about through a whole range of reasons. I mean, one, the most uncomfortable to talk about is kind of my own experience with psychological injury. Um, so yeah, like I, in, in my mid-20s, I think I'd done a pretty good job of suppressing um, the trauma um, that I'd experienced, the potentially traumatic events I'd been exposed to. So hang on, you're, so you're, you're going out on calls yes. and you're turning up to work. Well, I mean, I'm, at 16 years of age, I'm going to motor vehicle accidents um, where there's fatalities. You know, we're cutting people out of the car and, and um, they've passed away. Um, going to incidents where there's structure fires, houses or buildings and people have lost everything. You know, so not only you're exposed to the loss, but you're exposed to the people who have just lost everything. And that can be like quite a thing in and of itself. We often think about distress um, being related to the blood and the guts or, or the death. But quite often, um, at least for first responders, and we see this in some of the qualitative research, it's actually, they call it emotional aspect exposure. So you turn up and someone's lost everything, you know, um, all of their memories, all of um, their belongings, and they're in a state of just overwhelm from there. And that can be quite hard to see. Yeah, and they might not be insured or something. And yeah. That sort of thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, initially, um, where I was stationed, it was a lot of motor vehicle accidents. That's where most of the fatalities we were exposed to came from. Um, you know, I remember at 16 years of age, we went to a two-car motor vehicle accident. Um, they'd gone head-on at about 100 kilometers an hour or over 100 kilometers an hour. 
and there was screaming coming from one of the cars. And so um, the majority of the crews went that way. And I ended up being by myself, 16 or 17 years of age at the other car. And there was a status one, a, a young man, um, a teenager, and he was unconscious, unresponsive, you know, not breathing. And I was, he was just trapped by his leg. So I was trying to pull him out without any tools at that stage. And he passed away, stopped breathing while I was kind of holding on to him. So, you know, for a 17 year old, 16, 17 year old, that's a, that's a big thing to kind of navigate. And I think looking back now, I just didn't have the tools to navigate that apart from like, oh, well, this is, this is just part of it. I'll, I'll suck it up and get on with it. Um, so you tend not to process it and just move to the next thing? Or if you do process it, it's on a really superficial level. You, you know, you might talk to a couple of people about it, but if any strong emotions come up, we'll shut those down. You know, that's, that's a bit scary. I don't want to feel that. Um, so I'm sure there was processing that went on, um, but it just wasn't really sophisticated. Yeah. And so then over the 16 years, you've had more and more exposure. I think the way that they do calls in New Zealand Mets, there's been more exposure to those sorts of events more recently. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, um, in, in 2013, so historically firefighters have always provided some level of medical care, obviously, if we turn up to a motor vehicle accident, if we turn up to um, an industrial entrapment, so someone who's been trapped in machinery um, in the industry, uh, obviously at fires, sometimes people are trapped in fires, we provide first aid. That's part of our role, especially if um, emergency ambulance services haven't showed up yet. But uh, for most firefighters, uh, it wasn't a core part of our work. It's something that if St. John wanted our help or um, Wellington Free, for example, they'd request it and of course we'd provide it. But it wasn't really a formalized understanding where we'd go to medical calls. There were a few stations that did um, first responder work, but for the majority of um, career firefighters, at least, that wasn't the case. Um, however, in 2013, um, start of 2014, that all changed. And uh, the organization uh, signed up to a memorandum of understanding with these emergency ambulance services that said, every time there's a um, what they call a purple call, which is the most severe type of call, a medical call you could attend, a respiratory cardiac arrest, we're going to send a fire engine um, as well as ambulances. So not just a fire engine, we're going to send you, you're going to co-respond with ambulance um, to these scenarios, to these medical calls. And there's good reasoning for that. Um, you know, the evidence shows early um, CPR, early defibrillation improves outcomes for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. And often, um, even if ambulance is already there, we can do that kind of grunt work, do the um, compressions um, and provide early defibrillation. And certainly as a consequence of that, they've seen an increase in survival rates for, for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. Um, part of the problem, though, was that exponentially increased traumatic scenes um, for firefighters. Um, so if we're in the, uh, the district that I work in, the Auckland Central District, uh, I think we went from attending five medical calls in 2013. As of 2020, I believe that number had increased to 220. So like a 4,000% increase. So you talk about this um, potentially traumatic events, which has all been new language to me. Yeah. Uh, and coincidentally, I've just ended up with um, a couple of my sons being exposed to what I guess we'd call potentially yeah. traumatic events. So um, one was just witnessing a, a, an attack by a dog on a um, um, a little girl um, that appeared life-threatening yes. um, and the other one was you know attending fatality and um, making rescues and surf life-saving and it, what do we mean by a potentially traumatic event and what what is that and what why why do we even have that label what is it 
Yeah, yeah, it was a good question. I think it's good to take a step back and go, well, what do we mean when we talk about trauma? What does trauma mean? And uh, there's a few, there's obviously clinical kind of um, definitions of trauma that you get from the DSM, which is what psychologists and psychiatrists and GPs use to help diagnose mental disorders. Um, but I guess there's a more practical way of viewing it. And, and um, trauma comes from, from the Greek and translates to, to wound, basically. So we can experience a physical wounding, um, and most of us will have experienced some type of physical wounding in our life. But, but we can, you cut your hand or something. Yeah, you cut your hand. Physical wound, right? Yeah. External force impacts you know, your biological organism and leaves, uh, leaves a wound. And in the same way, you can experience a wound to your psyche, right? So um, psyche connotes mind, soul, and spirit. That's what it kind of translates from the Greek. So psychological trauma is a wound to the mind, soul, spirit, a wound, a mental injury. Um, and so that's how I like to think about it. Just, just like we can get a physical wound or a physical injury, we can also get a psychological wound or a psychological injury, a wound to our, our mind. Oh, so when you describe like attending that car accident when you were 17, yeah, um, that injured you psychologically, is that what you believe to happen? Well, I... I, I don't know if it injured me in any significant way. I don't think it did. Not that one an event, um, one event in and of itself, but it's certainly a risk. It's what we call a potentially traumatic event because it involved seeing the loss of life. Um, because there were people where their lives could have been lost. That's known as having the potential to cause trauma. It's, it's something significant um, that has the potential to overwhelm your ability to kind of understand it, to integrate it, to cope with it. But it's not necessarily the case that just because you're exposed to those things that you will end up with a psychological injury. And in fact, the normal response to potentially traumatic events is actually resilience. You know, right? You get you you, you grow from the experience. Well, even if you don't grow uh, grow from it, you're not psychologically injured by it. Yeah. You know, and so you least integrate and recover from it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're able to just cope with the scene. You have you have the resources. We all have a level of resilience that we've built up through our lives through different coping mechanisms. And the good news is for the majority of traumatic events we'll be exposed to in our lives, at least in the first responder context, we'll deal with those quite well. Um, however, um, it's not always the case, right? Because we're all human. Um, and just because we wear a uniform in the case of first responders doesn't mean that we're invincible or invulnerable. And, and those events, whether it's one event or accumulation of being exposed to those really difficult calls over the course of a career, that can actually lead to a psychological injury. Thankfully, most of the time it doesn't. But we have to be aware that it's a risk factor, just like anything else. Okay, so when you go to a, a suicide, particularly a young person, yes, um, and that's could overwhelm you. That's conceivable, right? Yeah, obviously, there's some correlation between the severity of the potentially traumatic event and the risk for psychological injury. So you go to something like an infant fatality, um, you go to a suicide of an adolescent. Those are obviously you know, on the high end of, of potentially um, traumatic. But again, just even if you go to one of those, it doesn't mean, okay, I've gone to the suicide, I'm going to end up with PTSD. That's absolutely not the case. Only really in recent history, the last 10, 20 years, we've really started to understand, because um, a, a lot of this understanding of trauma came out of um, the world wars and the Vietnam War, and, and a lot of it was focused around uh, veterans, you know, um, Personnel and the military. That? Like we had shell shock. What did that even mean? What, what were they thinking then? And what, what are we thinking? Yeah, well, so shell shock was this idea, right, that um, these behaviors that we see from people are a consequence of some physiological damage, right? So the concussion from the shell was going off was actually 
impacting the biological organism and then leading to those outcomes. But then what they found is actually soldiers who hadn't been in artillery barrage were still breaking down. You're still having what we now call um, experiences of post-traumatic stress and, and, and have what we now call PTSD or uh, PTSD meaning post-traumatic stress disorder. Some people call it PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. Uh, same thing. And what are you doing here? So you're not integrating, you're not being resilient or even sometimes growing for it, or you're, you're actually going the other way? Well, I mean, that's, that, that's part of it. I mean, coming back to that idea of shelf shock, what they initially thought was, all right, this is physiological. And then they realized, well, not everyone's being exposed to this concussion and yet we're seeing other people break down. And, and the really sad thing about it was, um, well, the good thing was they realized that, okay, it's not just from concussion. It's not just physiological. There's a psychological element to it. Um, but the psychological element they thought was um, a character element, you know, cowardice. And so there were people tortured or um, I believe even executed. You, you, you have officers behind the front lines shooting anyone who came backwards. Exactly, right? And these people are coming backwards, not because they're necessarily cowards, like they, they've got PTSD, they're, they're experiencing extreme levels of, of, of trauma, they're, they're psychologically wounded, and it was seen as a character deficit. Um, and unfortunately, what they realized after a while, that even some of their most courageous men, and it was mostly men back then, um, were starting to break down after a certain amount of time in the field, you know? And that is because the reality is like, no matter who you are, um, you're human and you have vulnerabilities and if you're exposed to enough of that stuff for a, for a long period of time, of course, it's going to have a, an effect on you. Um, I had this idea recently when I was reading some of the physiology around this stuff and it sort of took me back to my yep. days in psychology, especially behavioral psychology that yes. there's a sort of, uh, conditioning model, sort of evolutionary one, right? Like, yes. so, uh, in the same way that if you try to say poison a possum mm -hmm. um, with bait um, but it doesn't actually kill it it just gets really sick right that one thing it's never going to touch that bait again it doesn't right. need multiple learning experiences to know that that's a bad thing yes um and even if it never sees that bait again for 10 years it still won't like it just missing it won't make it go away sure um and i've heard similar descriptions and in, in sort of acquiring the knowledge about events and fear and bad outcomes so you get a single catastrophic experience mm. uh, you don't need any more learning it's some deep it, there's some reasons that would be biologically deeply embedded and again mm. it wouldn't just go away by doing nothing about it and mm. um, what do you make of that, that description yeah well, I, I mean my background is not in that type of um you know behavioral psychology but so, something that's um certainly appears to be true is that you know an experience of PTSD can be acute or chronic you know so you can have someone who's exposed to a single event and it's so significant that it leads to a, a psychological injury like PTSD. Um, but you can also have perhaps lesser events, but um, they accumulate over the course of time. And of course, this is the case with first responders. Um, it's that repeated exposure to trauma um, that seems to be a, a real issue. What's a bad outcome and what, what do you, and I think you've done some of this yourself, mm. um, what do you do to make this not go away and potentially make it worse? Right. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I can speak to it personally, like part of, part of what led me to, you know, apart from, um, firefighting into psychology and the research that I'm doing, um, at AUT or will be doing in the next couple of years was my own experience with psychological injury. 
And uh, for, for me, initially, that was anxiety. Um, it was then depression and finally suicidal ideation. And when I, well, like when I say suicidal ideation, I never planned to suicide. I never made a plan to do it. I didn't actually want to do it, but I started, I'd been depressed for so long that I started to have thoughts like maybe that's, maybe that's the option there, which of course it, it, it should never be the option. But, um, when you are so overwhelmed by depression and you don't see a way out, those thoughts can start to, to manifest. And so then the question could be answered in this way, like what, what were the things that um, maybe got me into that place in the first time, uh, in the, in the first instance, and what were the things that helped me out of that place, you know, cause I've been well for quite some time now, which is, which is great. And that's where the hope is, right? Is that even things like PTSD, which is a really significant injury, um, people are recovering from and can recover from. And that, and that's the great news, especially, um, if we're aware of what to be on the lookout for, and we have some idea of how we can, um, help people and calm ourselves and, and heal ourselves and be healed by other people, be open to, um, getting assistance. So, so just tipping back then. Yeah. Obviously one way to avoid getting this is to avoid exposure to those events in the first place, but it's not really an option in your job. Well, it's not an option in my job and it's not an option in life, right? Because what led to my experience of anxiety and depression wasn't just the stuff I'd seen as a young, you know, volunteer firefighter or a career firefighter was also, you know, like, um, some stuff from my childhood that I hadn't acknowledged and worked through, uh, relationship stuff, you know, um, trauma exposure to potentially traumatic events isn't the only thing that can contribute to, you know, psychological injuries, obviously. And, and you you know? So am I hearing you say that you expect adversity to be a natural part of a, of a normal life? Of course, we're all going to lose people that we care about. Um, we're all, we're all going to go through, you know, difficult times relationally, um, or at least the majority of us are. So it's not just about um, the exposure to what we call critical incidents, you know, that first responders often go to. You don't have to be a first responder to go to a critical incident, right? Truck drivers come across crashes all of the time. You know, every time there's a house fire, there's often neighbors who are, who are going to respond and be exposed, you know? So, um, so what did you do then that, that meant you didn't adapt? Well, what I didn't, yeah, what I didn't do was um, I didn't really talk. Well, first of all, I don't think I had a very high level of mental health literacy. So... If I look at some of my behavior back then, like the way I was acting out, um, the way I was treating other people, um, the way I went about relationships, looking back now, having a high level of kind of mental health literacy, I go, well, there's your symptoms. Like something's going on there, mate. Like there's, there's something that needed addressing. But back then I was, you know, ignorant. To, I just thought, you know, I was self-referential. I had no kind of level of objectivity to step outside of myself and go, Hey, this, this doesn't seem quite right. Like how you're acting, how you're behaving, how you're feeling. Um, can we bring some curiosity to this and explore what's going on there? So that's one thing, right? I, I didn't have a high level of mental health literacy. And, and you see that now when you're offering peer support to younger firefighters. Yeah. 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 If you're not aware that there's an issue, um, then there's not a lot you can do about it. Like that's where you've got to start with some level of awareness of, Hey, something doesn't seem quite right. That, that can be quite hard to do for yourself. And that's why it's good to be. Um, informed around, you know, mental health um, and, and trauma issues because then you can be um, out there looking out for other people and picking up on the signs and signals. Yeah. What role does alcohol have, have to play? Well, I think that's certainly, like we talk about adaptive and maladaptive coping mechanisms, which are just these fa fancy terms for, um, fancy psychological terms for good ways of coping with stress and, um, and trauma and bad ways of dealing with, you know, stresses and, and traumas. And so 
I, the way I think about adaptive versus maladaptive coping mechanisms is generally speaking, and um, for me at least, adaptive coping mechanisms are things that can be hard to do in the short term. So it's like, especially as a guy, um, it's hard to say, you know what, I'm going through a tough time at the moment, I need some help. Like it's hard to be vulnerable and, and push into that. And so there's difficulty, but actually over the long term, if I do that, you know, if I, if I um, turn towards, you know, my pain or the difficulties that I'm experiencing and I share that with someone else, doing that's, and we know this from the research, that that social support is going to be on one hand protective and also if I am already psychologically injured it's going to help me with my recovery um so difficult in the short term because it involves some vulnerability but in the long term really good for me maladaptive coping kind of the opposite easy in the short term like it's easy to have a whiskey and coke and uh, dampen some of those intense emotions or fears but in the long term especially if I keep doing that it's not going to resolve the issue and potentially it's going to make it worse so does that make sense you know that difference between yeah. So I definitely did that. I did the drinking, you know, I did the partying. Um, you know, it was kind of like a full term towards hedonism, you know, like I'll, um, I've, I've, yeah, I've solved this problem just by ignoring it, having fun, you know, drinking. I don't, I, it's not like I consciously thought about doing those things, but I, there was just a natural kind of movement into that. And, and the thing about maladaptive coping mechanisms, whether it's drinking or partying or whatever, um, not that partying is always bad, like you can have a good time. But when it's to run away from your issues, then that's a, then that, I, there's this great story that this um, Irish philosopher tells or analogy. And he says, you know, over in Ireland, um, you know, you had a tough week and there's like a pub on every corner, you know. And so you go down to the pub and you, you grab a pint with your mates and you talk about all the shit that's happened in your week, you know, but it's actually adaptive. And and you're going through it and you're turning towards it and, and it's been facilitated by a drink, but not, hopefully not a whole bunch of drinks. And, um, you know, you, you do that. And then by the, by 1am, you know, the fiddle, they've broken out the fiddle and there's dancing, you know, you've, you've turned towards it and on the other side of it, you know, there's this joy, um, where he says, you, you talk about the Western, um, concept of partying, um, at least in the modern sense. And it's like preload, you know, get pretty drunk before you even go into town. Then go into a club where the music's just drowning out any thoughts, you know, the alcohol's drowning out any feelings, you know, and it's all just about, I've got to be happy, you know, I've got to be at this heightened level of ecstasy, you know, I, I'm going to stay away from all the shit that's actually going on in my life. Yeah. And so I think that's one way to, to think about it. I really like And so um, one thing that's interesting to me, when you look at um, first responders, that's yeah. a broad category of people, their incidents of things like problematic drinking and uh, drug use is actually much, much higher than in general society. Yeah, well, we don't we don't know, unfortunately, here in New Zealand what the case is. But from from the studies we know of overseas, like there was a study in the US that found that um, alcohol dependence for for male career firefighters in their sample was I think it was around thirty percent. Okay, thirty percent of those firefighters um, screened positive for alcohol dependence. And you might just think maybe that's just the state of things over in the states at the moment. But actually, the the general population estimates were only around three to five percent. Yeah, so it's it's, it's seven to 10 times higher than the population. Absolutely. So again, like what I was talking about before, maladaptive um, responses to, to, to mental health or to psychological injury is actually really understandable because anxiety sucks. You know, depression is incredibly enveloping. So of course you're going to try and find ways to alleviate the distress, alleviate the pain. Um, so it's no wonder that you see in a, in a first responder context, 
where they've been exposed to really difficult scenarios, like on the daily, that you're going to see a, an elevated um, level of using alcohol to deal with it, you know? And if that's all you know um, in terms of dealing with, you know, those traumatic events or, or the pain in your life, then it's pretty understandable, you know? It's what I'd do if I yeah. Um, yeah. didn't know better. Yeah, wish you did. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did do it. You know, and at my worst, I, you know, I can still get caught up in that. That's the thing. You've got to, it's not like you get to a point where you've just nailed it and solved it. Um, you regress sometimes. Um, I've got plenty of maladaptive coping mechanisms, as I'm sure you do at times. Yeah. In fact, both of us indulged a little bit over the Christmas period. So we're having to come back to some good, healthy, you know. Oh, yeah. So everyone out there, what uh, Josh and I do at the moment is um, we're providing some social support. Josh is going to get married in um, and. No, five yeah, years yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to do a half marathon, and so we've committed to supporting each other on a yeah, yeah, uh, on a nutritional journey. I'm prone to beer and chips. Um, yeah, Josh yeah. is. I don't know what you're prone to. Overeating. Yeah, overeating in general. Yeah. I blame it on the fire service actually. The yeah. meals they cook, mate, it's huge. Yeah. yeah, and now you're on a less active job. You're worried that you'll just go worse. Yeah, I'm just a desk jockey now, mate. Yeah. So. Okay. So um, we'll tell you how we went. Um, hopefully, all right. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So the other thing that. I learned from you is um, you'd been exploring the the literature and where the evidence was in your postgraduate studies and in, in, uh, trauma, mm. and you pointed out that actually for your group of first responders, one of the main uh, protective effects is having organisational support. Can you tell me about that whole thing because that's a really interesting idea, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, if, I mean, if we back it up, talk about so I've got this experience um, of. Uh, psychological injury myself, anxiety, depression, uh, suicidal, leading to suicidal um, ideation and coping with it really poorly. Like, what are the things that, that help? Was one, a growing understanding of, you know, these behaviors or these outcomes aren't, aren't normal. Um, understandable, right? We don't want to judge the stuff. We want to bring some curiosity. Understandable given, like, looking at some of my childhood stuff and some of the unprocessed stuff, the trauma exposure, but, but not good for me. But what were the other things? It's like, well, social support was a huge part of me getting out of um, that place, and and that looked like me reaching out to another firefighter and saying, "Man, I'm like, I'm not coping here. I'm struggling." And him, I mean, he wasn't a psychologist, he wasn't a counselor, but you don't have to be. He just was there to support, provide connection. You know, we know that that connectiveness, um, that social support, um, which doesn't necessarily look like a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and and it, in some cases, at least early on, it's best not to be, um, is incredibly helpful. Um, I was also connected um, to a clinical psychologist through through my family, through um, my local GP. And um, and we went on a bit of a journey together of exploring, like, how, did I, how have I found myself, like, I'm a young guy, um, I've got lots of life fa lifestyle factors that are going for me, I exercise, I eat pretty well, but I've still found myself in this place. What's going on here? And so... That's an adaptive way to cope um, with stresses. Actually, they talk about um, pro uh, problem solving, bringing a problem solving mindset to, to these issues. And so the combination of that social support, understanding that there was an issue, being connected up with the um, healthcare professional um, and finding myself in a community that I felt I could be vulnerable with, you know, and didn't feel too judge judged by, and incredibly important. So if we look at that individual experience and then extrapolate that out to um, you know, a larger group of people, first responders, a lot of it crosses over. So in the research on, on first responders um, and the things that contribute to their psychological injuries, um, three big 
factors. Obviously, the exposure to trauma doesn't help, you know, this constant, repeated exposure to trauma. You know, there's some firefighters, um, I spoke to an officer recently, he went to eight fatalities, so eight, eight, eight incidents um, or eight medical calls that could have involved a fatality or did involve a fatality over 24 hours, right? You know, some members of the general population, you'd be unlucky if you're exposed. Exactly, yeah. So that is that is the severity of, of the exposure. Um, so obviously that's a factor, this exposure, exposure to potentially traumatic events. Um, and, I, and I think you're bringing this up early, why we call it a potentially traumatic event. Um, if we ground that in, in uh, a bit of a firefighter analogy, we don't call them traumatic events, even though they involve the loss of life and, and really difficult things. Um, because if it was true that that was the only variable that contributed to PTSD or something like that, what you'd see is four firefighters go to that call, all four firefighters end up with PTSD. But that's not what happens. Um, even in the extreme example, so even with five firefighters went to all eight fatalities in 24 hours. Correct. That's absolutely not a guarantee that they're going to develop PTSD, which is really good news. So there's other, obviously other factors that contribute to the vulnerability for PTSD than just exposure to, to that really difficult um, scene or scenario. And those other factors included um, stuff like, well, I call them like personal factors. So that might be um, adverse um, childhood experiences. Uh, it might be, you know, your current relation, relational status, you know, is there conflict in the relationship? Are you going through a divorce? Uh, it might be financial stress. Yeah, absolutely financial stresses. You know, if you're going through a divorce and, um, you know, you're having to pay for lawyers, there's this kind of accumulation of stresses that start to happen, right? Because you're losing a social support and a partner. You also don't have as much money. So th that kind of needs not being met. And then on top of that, you're exposed to this traumatic event. Um, well, that's, that's going to be, that individual is going to be more at risk than the firefighter that things are solid at home, they're socially supported, they're well-connected, financially they're in a good place. Um, that's where the, those personal factors can be predictive or create. Um, like they can either be a, a barrier or a facilitator to, to well-being. And then the other big factor, so we've got the exposure to trauma, which is a factor, um, the individual personal factors, the at-home stuff, which is a factor. And then the other big factor that we see in the research is what's seen as organizational or occupational stresses. So that's something we can all kind of relate to as well, not just first responders, like the majority of us who are working age are in, are in employment. And our workplaces can have a huge impact on our, on our well-being and our levels of resilience and vulnerability. So, you know, if, if I'm a firefighter and I've got a boss and an organization that I feel has my back, incredibly protective, right? Because I, I can um, come to them and say, hey, I'm not coping, right? And I, and I know they're going to support me. Um, but unfortunately, the opposite is true. You know, if I, have, if I have a perception that, you know, my manager doesn't care about me, my organization doesn't care about me or put my well-being, you know, uh, as a priority, well, that's going to make me potentially less resilient. Um, so organizational, there was a large study done in uh, Canada recently. And what they found was, and, and you know more about this than me, um, with your research background, they can actually control for these different factors and see how much each of them contribute. And so they controlled for the exposure to trauma. And even after controlling for that exposure to trauma, they found that these organizational factors um, contributed even more to those outcomes or, or were a significant contributor at the least. Yeah, it's been so interesting um, coming on that journey with you. So yeah. and then you talk about, there's two interesting words, you talk about uh, cynicism. Yes. And then um, sometimes you talk about embitterment. What, what do you mean by that when you're cynical about your organization? 
Yeah, well, it's just we're trying to understand um, to what degree, if, if, if you don't feel, if you don't trust your organization. So the, the thing that I study is, um, or the concept I study is um, known as perceived organizational support. And that's defined as the degree to which you feel as an employee, as a worker, that your um, manager, that your leader, and that your organization cares about your well-being and values your contribution. And um, another word for, for POS is trust. To, to what degree do you feel like you can trust your organization, you can trust your management? Okay, but then if they say they do, because you know, virtually every decent-sized organization has a set of values. Yes. Um, no one's going to say, we don't care about you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, almost every organization is going to have a set of values that are yeah. uh, something about caring about the well-being of their staff. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but that's not what counts, right? It's about actioning that. And if they if they have that statement where they say, yeah, we really care about you, you're our number one priority, yeah. and they don't, Yes. That, that's is that what you call cynicism? Um, well, that's what we're going to explore in the research, you know? So we've got, in the research that we're doing, we've got a scale that accounts for cynicism and a scale that counts for embitterment. To what degree that's going to... Um, play out in the research, I'm not exactly sure, but it kind of makes intuitive sense, right? Is that if you feel like your organization doesn't care about you, or you feel like your organization makes promises, but then doesn't um, act them out, you're going to be cynical. You're going to be less trusting than you would be if you saw your organization say you're the most important thing. And then your interactions with organizational leadership actually demonstrated that, you know, if you see, if you see an incongruence between what people say, oh, I mean, this happens in you know, if I tell you, Grant, hey, I'm going to give you some accountability um, and I promise to do that and then I don't follow through with that, um, then you're going to be a little bit more cynical, um, potentially, um, a little less trusting of, of me in, in the past. And hopefully you've got a bit of grace, yeah. right? Well, but if, I mean, any large organization, it's hard to not be a little bit cynical because, it's, yeah. you know, things are going to fail, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but that's different than embitterment. If, can, if I get this right, just tell me I've got this wrong. Uh, so I'm a bit cynical about the organization. I think there's a bit of a mismatch between what they say they do and what mm. they actually do, but then actually something bad happens to me mm. and they really don't act on it. In fact, they, I feel they've, they've harmed me from it. Is that what embitterment is? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean in terms of the, um, those as scientific measures, I'm not 100% a, a sure. You know, obviously we're working with um, Professor Robert Eisenberger and his team, like, in, a funny story, you know, like I'm... I'm really interested in this concept of perceived organizational support and how improving it, improving that sense of trust and, and connectedness might improve outcomes for first responders, given that we can't reduce exposure to trauma or there's very little we can do about that. So I'm like, what, what are the things that can help there? I did this um, study on suicide and psychological injury and maladaptive behavior within my organization. And off the back of that, I was like, well, these organizational factors, that's something we can do about, found this concept of POS coming up in the literature. So I just tracked this guy, Professor Robert Eisenberger, this like world-renowned um, researcher down on Google and find out, find a number on there. And I just like called the number, went through to some, you know, um, answering machine, didn't think I'd ever hear anything else about it. And then suddenly I get a phone call a couple of hours later from a US number and there's Professor Eisenberger, you know, um, how can I help you? And so, laid out the situation, how I thought POS might be a factor, and he was all in. And I think that was over two years ago now, and, and he's working, um, him and his team are working with us on this on this project that we're doing, so. Yeah, I, I've been I've been officially naming that effect the Joseph, Joseph Sphere. Joseph Sphere. Yeah, people yeah. will get uh, pulled in by your enthusiasm yeah, and conduct a project. Suck everyone in. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm obviously not an expert on um, 
uh, all of the elements that make up the survey, but I've been uh, really committed to pulling in the best people, including yourself, um, from around the world to contribute and bring the expertise. And, and I see my role as bringing that, you know, um, 16, 17 years of operational experience, um, along with this kind of keen interest in psychology, my own experience with psychological injury, and, and more recently the study and research in research and trauma. So I guess just to let people know, I think, well, I'll give you my perspective, see yeah. if you agree with us, that um, what you've managed to do while you were career firefighting, going to fires and yeah. medical calls and uh, uh, training and everything else that you do with a shift-based system yeah, um, and fishing the ocean out, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. you've managed to um, do some postgraduate study yeah. and then uh, apply through a, a, a grant, international grant process that uh, Movember, the Men's Health yes. Charitable Trust, put out. Um, around the health and well-being of yeah. uh, first responders, uh, I think there was a hundred or something applications worldwide, um, and they they funded like fifteen or fourteen or sixteen or something. What was that? Yeah, so a few things uh, like it, it kind of started off the back of working through and getting to a, a, a better place psychologically. You know, I think part of that journey is then wanting to help other people, and so as I grew in my kind of capacity to be vulnerable, I started sharing like what I was going through with some of my mates. And what you find is up until that point, it's quite isolating. You, you're like, I'm the only person in the world feeling this intensity of anxiety or hopelessness, you know, in terms of depression. But as you open yourself up to um, telling other people about it and being vulnerable, you find that you're not alone. And in fact, a number of my friends were going through similar things, you know, and, and in some ways they're probably relieved to hear, you know, they weren't alone in it. So I started to go, okay, this isn't just me. This is other people, which is a little bit reassuring. I mean, sucks that it impacts more than one person, but that's the reality. And then um, as I continued to journey, I got involved with peer support, which is this um, concept of within first responder organizations, especially of peers being there for peers, um, firefighters helping firefighters or police officers helping police officers. And uh, through that work, I started traveling uh, around Auckland um, and also around the country later on and finding that actually um, these experiences seem to be spread throughout the country, you know, sometimes a result of trauma exposure, sometimes a, a result of stuff that was happening at home, relationship breakdown or whatever, most often probably a combination of those things. But I, I started to be quite concerned. It's like, hey, this, this seems to be a real issue and I'm not sure we're, we're on top of it. Um, so yeah, I, I got in contact with some local universities. I came across um, the program of violence prevention and trauma recovery at AUT that was run by Warwick Pudney and, and Helen Curran at the time. I owe a lot to them. And I started doing a postgraduate diploma in, in that area of study. Uh, I got a firefighter scholarship to explore those issues of suicide and psychological injury in my organization. And um, Warwick actually talked me into it. Initially, I just thought um, I'd get a university on board, they'd do it all. And um, I, I will have done my piece, you know, but he said, no, 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 you know, you come and do this, bring your operational experience and lens into this, combine it with some research and some high level understanding around trauma and then let's see where we end up. Um, so yeah, we do all of that. I, I do my study, I complete the um, postgraduate diploma. And then I just carry on like um, obviously researching and looking into those issues. And then I come across this opportunity um, from November, right? And and um, so Movember being a very large men's health charity, I think they were initially known for um, prevention around cancer, like testicular and prostate cancer for men, um, but now also around the mental injury side of things and depression and anxiety in men. 
and they um, are really interested in helping first responders and veterans as well, which is really cool. And so they had this initiative um, to help to help us, to help firefighters, police officers, um, combat veterans, emergency ambulance services, um, because they know, and, and we know from the research, that this is a really prevalent issue around the world that you see first responders um, impacted at higher rates than the general population by these psychological injuries. And so they funded this international scoping review and the idea being what we need to do is identify suicide prevention programs and mental ill health prevention recovery programs that work, um, identify where they are in the world and then scale them. Make sure that if it's working here and it's making a real difference and it's reducing you know, um, prevalence of these things or um, reducing the symptomology, that everyone gets that benefit. So they funded a, a, an international scoping review of those things. Unfortunately, what they found was that there were no evidence-based programs. No evidence-informed? Evidence-informed. And, and maybe you want to speak to the difference between something that's evidence-informed and evidence-based. Yeah, so it seems like a good idea. It should work that there's a bunch of things coming together, either biological or epidemiological, that would say that would be successful, but yes. actually hasn't been tested. Yeah, yeah, or, you, or, it, or it might have been tested in a certain context or in a, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but it hasn't actually been tested in the way that it's being implemented, you know, in a group context or within a specific organization. So there's, there's lots of programs out there, but um, the publicly, and maybe there's some that there is evidence for, but the publicly available evidence isn't there to show that those programs are evidence-based. They also identified that this, uh, the organizational support was was potentially a major factor that hadn't been investigated. Yes, well, that, that was in a, um, a different study actually carried out um, uh, by Don McCreary, who, who did the scoping review, um, or at least he was part of that. And, and that was looking at um, Canadian um, protective service occupations, I think. And that's where they found that. So, so Movember then has to pivot and go, well, actually, rather than going straight to um, promoting, expanding these programs, we actually need to evaluate the programs that are already out there or design new programs that actually we can show, um, create these, these outcomes that we want to see. And you've designed one around uh, fire and emergency in New Zealand. You've designed one which uh, looks at the organizational factors uh, and you're hoping that that's going to show some positive effects on wellbeing. Yeah, so my interest was um, there's lots of ways you can um, kind of attack the the antecedents of psychological injury you can look at it from individual and, and group levels and and i guess from my research i was more interested in the organizational um contributors to those outcomes and and uh that's why when that opportunity came up i thought well that's potentially where the gold is right like again we can't do much about the trauma exposure there's limitations about what we can do about the personal factors like foreign emergency certainly provides assistance um for even stuff outside of the job, like if you're going through a relationship issue, there's EAP services that are paid for by the organization. And I know that's true for most first responder organizations. But actually, what about these organizational factors, like um, the perceptions of leadership, the perceptions of trust, the perceptions of value? Um, that seems to be something that isn't as tapped into. Um, and we know now that it's a, it's a really significant factor. So yeah, there's, uh, they put out uh, uh, you have the opportunity to apply around the world for this funding. I think they put up about $10 million in, in funding to do evaluations of programs. I think there was 150-ish uh, um, programs or letters of intent put in, uh, got down to the last 50. 
put in a full submission. And then, yeah, we're fortunate enough um, late last year to, to, to get an email saying, hey, you know, you've been selected from, I think it's seven or eight different countries around the world to have this funding, to, to develop this program and to evaluate it robustly and, and see if we can make a difference. So our program is actually called the Tanga program. Uh, Tanga being uh, this Maori word that um, loosely translates to, um, I guess, connection, relationship, you know, whakawhanaungatanga um, and tanga, um, the building and maintaining of relationship, the building and maintaining of trust. And for me, that's, um, that's the kaupapa that this project's really interested in, is how can we um, identify the things that violate trust, um, that violate relationship, um, as well as the things that contribute to trust and relationship, and obviously minimize, eliminate those factors in an organization that violate trust and relationship and um, provide further resourcing for the things that, that build those, um, those concepts. So uh, yeah, we're, we're obviously at that stage or around that stage, I got in contact with you. Um, and so now AUT is in, involved in that endeavor as well, which I'm really excited about. And we've got a good few years of really working on that so we're looking forward yeah. to seeing, seeing what can happen absolutely and, and who knows what's going to happen but um what's been really encouraging is obviously when we got down to the last stages of the submission i had to um i can't financially administer the grant and so approached um my organization and um yeah they were really supportive and they've been and, more supportive yeah and jumped on board like i i mean there's probably some there's probably some reservations you know like it's just like it's difficult for an individual to um be vulnerable and to, and to take feedback and to take feedback and, and to go, Hey, maybe not everything's right in my life, but I'm sure for organizations, that's a difficult thing to do as well to say, you know what, um, maybe we're not as good as we could be. However, you know, if, if, if we really want to live out these values, we're going to have to be open to, you know, um, maybe not measuring up in some areas, not so that we can just have a dig at the organization, but so we can actually work with the organization to change that. And I think, um, unfortunately some organizations avoid that altogether or aren't hoping to that or are too afraid of that. Thankfully, um, my organization, um, you know, despite what that, the vulnerability um, that that's gonna entail, um, they've been up for it so far. So that's, it's really encouraging. All right, I wanna finish by exploring three topics. Yeah. Um, the first is, and let's just, let's just riddle into these. The first yeah. is dualistic versus non-dualistic <laughs> yeah. thinking. This is a big topic for you. What is that? Yeah, yeah that's quite the switch. Um, well, I'm interested in psychology and, and interested in philosophy. And so that's more of the philosophical branch of my interest. But um, it's this concept of uh, different types of thinking. And so dualistic thinking, um, and, I, and I, I guess I've garnered a lot from um, a philosopher, Richard Raw, a theologian, and, and he talks about um, these concepts of dualistic thinking as being either or thinking, you know, looking at an issue and saying it's either, either this or either that. In the, in the context of first responders and looking at trauma, it was like, well, either it's either the trauma exposure that contributes to those outcomes or it's the personal issues. Um, or, or even in society, it's you're vaxxed or not vaxxed. So what side are you on? Or, or, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Every time there's been an issue in humanity, that's been, it tends to go to that binary. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, you're exactly right. It's a very binary way, black and white way of thinking, right? And, and it's not that there shouldn't be any space for, for binary thinking. You know, when I get to an intersection, it's a, it's a binary decision. Do I go left or do I go right? But when you get to matters of greater complexity, what we find is that's quite a limited lens to, to try and sort through those issues. So, I mean, we look at quantitative research. We know if you do a univariate analysis, um, that's going to be frowned upon, right? Because 
there's all these other potential factors that are contributing to those outcomes. And if you're just doing a univariate analysis, you're not accounting for those other factors. That's why we have a multivariate analysis. And then you need to have a multivariate analysis. So in a research sense, you could think of non-dualistic thinking as both and. We're going to include all of the variables that, or at least more variables than just one or the other that could contribute to this. So tell us about the idea of your On the Other Hand podcast. Oh, yes. I've had this idea for a while of, of the... Um, and in part, it's come because of my frustration with my own ways of interpreting things dualistically at times, you know, being quite stubborn and only seeing things um, in a black and white, white way, but also organizationally. And then you see it in society. It just seems to be so prevalent in society that people are so binary in, in their thinking, you know, so black and whether it's politics, whether it's religion, like there's no space for nuance. There's no space uh, for complexity. And that's the antithesis of um, non-dualistic thinking or, or wisdom thinking i guess you you could call it um so yeah on the other hand would be to look at an issue and say well on one hand you know this is how we could look at it but on the other hand you know this is the flip side um and you and you see this um in some philosophy like i quite like the um, concept of that came from uh, hegel and then uh, johann fick developed it um further of thesis antithesis synthesis right so um, you have a hypothesis, you have a thesis, well, it's going to have holes, it's going to have errors. So actually, the best thing, um, if you're interested in getting to the truth, is actually to have that tested. For there to be an that is the whole idea of the scientific process, right? Yeah, it's a, you have a hypothesis, then you test it, and that's an antithesis, yeah. you know? And through that process, what you want to get to is a third something, which doesn't necessarily, necessarily negate all of the thesis or all of the antithesis, antithesis it actually combines, you know, the truth. It takes elements of truth from both those things. So I, for me, like that's a level of thinking that I want to bring to these issues, whether it's politics or religion or, or trauma is like, let, let's not just look at this in um, a really dualistic, simplified um, way, which is easy. Like it's nice to do. It's what I tend towards because it's simpler. It doesn't give me a headache, but in the end it's, it's probably not going to get us as close to truth as bringing a, a non-dualistic approach. Right. Yeah, other fields like nutrition, you see this all the time, right? right. You know, vegan well, you versus not, or, right. or fat, saturated fat versus not, or right, yeah, uh, yeah. And of course, there's just nuances all over the place, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So the the truth is not like that. Yeah, yeah. And so you get people who are fully in one camp or fully in the other camp. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I I get a bit nervous around people who are, you know, fully invested um, in one idea. Not not that it's bad because I'm fully invested in the idea of, um, you know. Uh, understanding trauma but i hope that i come to my understanding of trauma with some openness you know that i could be wrong that there are facets of it that i don't understand and and there is you know uh, i like the buddhist idea of the beginner's mind you know like you could study um trauma for 50 years and still if you bring the right attitude go you know what i, I know barely nothing about trauma oh yeah so so you mentioned a, a fellow called Richard Raw. You mentioned him earlier, but I want to switch into the next topic, which yeah. is the idea of uh, growth, yeah. but also his idea of um, the only way to grow is through adversity. What do you make of that whole philosophy and, and where does it, and what is it about? Yeah, well, I, I think one of the big things I've taken from him and, and, and the work that he's done around the world is that firstly, yeah, we, we need to come with an openness, um, and uh, this concept that part of the truth isn't the whole truth. Um, but further to that, when he, when he comes to this concept of um, adversity and trauma and pain, um, 
what he talks about is, if, or, or I've heard him quote before, is this concept that whatever pain we don't acknowledge and um, transform, we eventually transmit, right? And that just makes intuitive sense to me, right? Whatever, whatever experiences, traumatic or painful that we experience in our life that we don't acknowledge and turn towards, um, those experiences are going to find their way out uh, in some ways. And, and maybe they get internalized and then manifest as anxiety or depression. Maybe they get externalized and manifest as, you know, kind of aggressive behavior or, um, you know, these kind of uh, relationship issues. Uh, but if, if we're not attuned to that, um, to our pain, to our trauma, um, if we don't have any awareness of that, and if we also don't know how to process it, unfortunately, the outcome of that is likely going to be some type of um, pathology. Um, I, you could think about it like, I think about it like this sometimes, you know, I um, get eczema and I think in part dairy products, um, you know, consumption of dairy products contribute to it. And uh, I could get really annoyed about my eczema, but actually my eczema is a symptom of something underlying it, right? Which is an allergy towards, uh, uh, an allergy to something. So actually the, the eczema, if we conceptualize it that way, is it helping me? It's saying, hey, there's something that you're ingesting here that's not helpful. Yeah. So uh, you could rub the steroid cream on it. That's not necessarily, it's just going to hide it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so what I like about uh, Roar and, and what he attempts to do with the center of action and contemplation, which is actually we should talk about that, 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 that concept of action and contemplation. But just to stick with this for the moment is like, right, depression, anxiety, are they signals? Are they symptoms of things? Uh, for a long time, as you know, things like depression was just seen as some biological imbalance. Uh, but now we know from the evidence that that's, that's not the case, that actually um, trauma is a contributor. Um, the adversities in our lives, and especially in childhood, are contributors, right? So then we can look at things like anxiety. And, and childhood especially because we don't have a sophistication and coping strategy. So yeah, well, things in childhood are more likely to return, not process and... Yeah, well, how's a, a child, you know, uh, who, who may not even be at a verbal stage, able to acknowledge and process trauma that they're exposed to? You know, at least as an adult, at least as a teenager, I could still do something with that experience. I could still um, verbalize it to someone, even if it wasn't in a sophisticated way. Whereas the child, they don't even have that function available to them. So what's the only option available to them? Probably repression, you know, and so... And that eventually comes out somewhere. It's going to come out somewhere somewhere down the line at least that's what that statement gets to same same thing but what that helps us do right is it brings hope because it says actually my depression anxiety and i don't want to minimize those things and I, and I know i've been in those places right so this isn't minimizing it but um those are symptoms of potentially something in your life that that needs addressing you know and the, and the hope is if i address this um there'll be an alleviation of the symptoms that are um, that are manifesting as a consequence of it not being addressed and not being But rule would say that not only would it be alleviated, you might actually grow and be better. Well, th this is this concept of, of post-traumatic growth that actually through adversity, if we do a good job of turning towards it um, and being um, attentive to it and, and healing it, not only can we um, gain resilience again, but we can actually grow from that experience. And you, and you see this, right? You see this with people like Viktor Frankl. Uh, I don't know if you've read his... Jewish guy that was in concentration camp. Concentration camp. Yeah. Like that, some of the worst trauma you could be exposed to. And yet, um, the way he navigated that and found meaning in it meant that he became more human. 
uh, he was able to give more back to the world, not from avoiding, you know, um, exposure to life difficulties or life trauma, but by being able to do something meaningful with it, you know, um, and, and growing from it. And so there's this phenomena within research now um, known as post-traumatic growth, which is not only can you recover and, and heal from trauma and um, psychological um, injury, you can actually come out better for it. You know, there's, there's things that, that and, and, that, and, and I can speak to that personally, you know, like I'm, it seems this can land the wrong way, but I'm, it, it belongs. Like my experiences of anxiety and depression, like if I hadn't had those experiences, I wouldn't find myself where I am now, getting to be involved in this like incredible research, getting to connect with um, people who are, who are finding themselves in places that I were and being able to help them. So if it wasn't for those experiences and being able to actually process them and, and learn from them, I wouldn't have grown like I have now. What does Raw say about that? He actually says that um, these are inevitable in many cases, but actually also necessary to move life stages. And he says that everyone gets there. Yeah. Um, it might be in the final few moments of your life, but preferably would be through uh, other means earlier. What's that all about? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, if you're, if you're interested in his work, he looks at this concept of the two halves of life and how, you know, in the, in the initial stages of, and, and you see this um, uh, in, in some psychology as well um, and sociology and that in the early stages of life, a lot of it's self-referential and, and egotistical and all about my, my needs. Um, but as we grow older, hopefully there's a maturation that occurs that helps us move out of, outside of that. I've got a long way to go. Um, I know in that area as well, but it's, it, hopefully what it means is if we do that work well, that ego work well, um, when we do find ourselves in positions of power or influence, we're not going to abuse it or we're going to be less likely to abuse it. Um, so yeah, there's a necessary journey. He talks about how they do work in, uh, concepts of, uh, historical concepts of male rites of passage, for example, was, was one of the ways they dealt with. And so, um, the idea at least, uh, that they speak to there is that historically, um, young boys were initiated and they saw, they saw this cross-culturally into manhood. And there was these key concepts that um, the tribe or, or the village would um, help to integrate for the young boy. And, and that involved taking them out of um, the comfortable environment and putting them out in the wilderness for a time. And hopefully what that process did, uh, did was actually uh, help settle their ego. So they knew that life isn't all, all about me. You know, I should be about life and I should be about other people. Um, I'm vulnerable, you know, like I, I'm not invincible. Uh, one day I'm going to die. You know, and oh, so, you, you talk about those rules about the, there's a number of those. Do you remember those? So one day I'm going to die. Uh, life's not all about me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that these were lessons that, um, historically then they saw cross-culturally that would need, the young boy would need to be initiated into or have a sense of, because otherwise they grow up, right. And think that life's all about me, that I'm an invincible. And then if they do find themselves in a potential, uh, in a position of power, well, invariably the chances are they might abuse that power, you know, or just use it for their own benefit at the cost of others. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's an area that's worth investigating. I, I know that that doesn't happen as much in society today. So now that we don't have those, uh, at least in the Western world and in modern society, as much of those kind of um, programs of initiation or of um, what do we do here with ego development and, and how do we create... That ego development and initiation really just exposing that that adolescent to adversity well, uh, I think in a troll way. I think that's part of it. I, yeah. I think about it like this, you know, if you think about resilience. 
if I go into the gym, if I, if I want to, and you'll be able to tell me more about the um, biological physiology of this, but if I don't expose my muscles to a stressor, right? If I don't jump on that bench press, um, then to some degree I'm going to atrophy, right? And, and there's not going to be growth. Um, by the same token, if I overload, right? If I overload my muscles, um, completely overload my muscles ability to cope with that weight, that stressor, then I'm going to get an injury. So there's like this little ground there where um, we want to be exposed to stresses. Like stress isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, they talk about you should actually delineate stress into distress and eustress. You know, so distress or post-traumatic stress is, you know, um, not healthy, whereas eustress is like, it helps me grow. So going back to that metaphor, I need some stress to help build the muscle. Um, no stress at all, not helpful. Too much stress, I'm going to do an injury. So we've got to find a, and that's that dualism thing. The non-dualistic way is, what's the middle pathway here? We've got these two extremes. Can we negotiate some type of compromise, some type of middle ground? Um, yeah, where you're being exposed to a stressor, but you're being exposed in such a way where it's not completely overwhelming and won't lead to, a, to an injury, psychologically or physically. Yeah. What do you like that term of the center for uh, oh, yeah. action and contemplation? Yeah, I, I just, I love this idea of, because we see it in the fire service and I, and I see the, the, the parallel. So they have the center for action and contemplation. And the idea is that contemplation is really important. You know, we need to think things through um, before we act, right? And so you'll see people who are contemplatively orientated, um, often researchers, um, deep thinkers. Um, but the risk there, right, is that their whole life becomes about contemplation. Just, yeah, and they don't act. Like, right? like, like your idea of the podcast, you're contemplating it but you haven't acted on well yeah i guess you're acting in some ways yeah 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 no you're right yeah i haven't acted it out the idea is there and i've been thinking about it but i haven't acted so in some ways i'm actually you know um i'm in balance here um on the other hand to, to steal the podcast name um we get people who are really action orientated right and they just want to do and, and change things and make things happen but they haven't done enough of the contemplation work so when they do act it's not always good actions, right? So there can be an imbalance there. You know, and the dualistic mindset would be like, oh, we just need to do contemplation or we just need to do action. And the non-dualistic way of looking at that is actually there's a relationship here between contemplation and action and they should feed into each other, right? Good contemplation should lead to good action and good action should um, lead to, to contemplation again, what worked, what didn't. And so on the fire service, like, that's something that's intuitively taught. Um, when I did my training to be an officer, you, you go you go back down, and as a senior firefighter, it's all it's a lot of it's action based, and so you turn up to these incidents, and all of a sudden, um, you know, okay, crew, get in there. But if I haven't actually walked around that building, done a three sixty of that building, I, I might have missed the fact that actually the best access was around the back, or there's patients around the back, and I've already committed my resources because I've just wanted to act um, in a way that hasn't maximised them. So, but if you just walked around scoping it for the whole time, you, you would. It's going to burn to the ground, isn't it? Yeah. So what they what they teach you down there is to do a rapid three sixty, right? Which is before you come. If there's anything obvious that needs doing, of course do it. Like if there's someone, I'm not going to walk around the building if there's someone like lying down there straight away. So if there's a snap rescue to be done, let's get that done. But otherwise, what I'm going to do before I commit my resources and I commit to a strategy is I'm going to do a quick walk around that building or that incident to do some contemplation to figure out what's going on here with the understanding that that will be the best foundation to a strategy and an action. But like you say, if I spend an hour walking around that building, well, the thing's burned to the ground by the time, by the time I act. So there's, there's this tension between contemplation and action. And that's what non-dualism is. It's like this openness to sitting with things being a bit unresolved, sitting with tension, 
um, before we act. Okay, last little switch of topic for yeah. Josh Darby is something that you're quite big on, I know, and, and, and actually when you, you, you more or less insisted I do uh, a personality test called the Enneagram, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, um, both for my own insight, but for your insight, what, what, what's that about and how do you get into that? And what, why is it valuable in your opinion? Yeah, well, I came, uh, so I've, I've done a little bit of study and research on psychometrics, which is, um, again, psyche, that word's coming in there, the mind, soul, spirit, and metrics being measurement. So psychometrics being um, the measurement of those, uh, those elements of the mind. Um, and so there's two main domains of that. There's kind of the, um, and you'll see this a lot in recruitment for organizations, there's the psychometrics of um, cognitive ability. But there's also the psychometrics of personality. And so I'm more interested in the, in the personality psychometrics. And there's lots of them out there. There's like Myers-Briggs, uh, the big five, which is probably the most scientifically um, robust. Um, looks at things like um, conscientiousness and industriousness and extroversion, et cetera, neuroticism, et cetera, et cetera. But one that's really resonated for me, it's not as scientifically robust, although there's been a recent meta-analysis done, which was um, really interesting is the Enneagram. And um, I came across this in part through war. And it's a way of conceptualizing personality, nine different personality types. And um, the concept is that we all have a personality type. While we encompass all, all of the nine types, there'll be one that's like a home base for us. Um, so there's like, there's the reformer, which is the one, there's the helper, which is number two, there's the achiever, there's the individualist, there's the observer, there's the loyalist, there's the adventurer, there's the boss or the challenger, and there's the peacemaker. And so people listening to this, they're probably already starting to um, position themselves. But you can take a test and it gives you a sense of what is likely to be a home base for you. Um, so I find that really interesting. Like for example, what I turn out to be the, you are the, the, the challenger, yeah, but with a subtype of achiever, which sort of works quite well for the work I do, right? Yeah, well, you, you, you can have uh, a number of types that um, come quite closely together. So you, your main type was um, an eight on the Enneagram, which is the boss or the challenger. And we've definitely figured out, you know, that, that seems to be true for you. Um, but what I really like about it is this non-dualism. Um, it brings to personality. So uh, there's not a hierarchy to the numbers. If you're a nine, you're not better than a one. What the Enneagram says is actually there's a shadow side and a... Um, I guess, healthy side to every personality, right? So um, I'm a three on the Enneagram to give something away, which is the achiever. So at my best, you know, I'm going to be um, uh, pragmatic and I'm going to be a bit of an efficiency expert and I'm going to um, use influence and charisma to benefit not just myself, but other people, right? Those are some of the strengths of my personality type. Um, however, at my worst, right, it's all going to be about me and it certainly can be at times, you know, and I have to be on the, on the watch out for that. Um, so it's going to be, a lot of it's going to be self-referential and I'm going to have a, um, propensity to exaggerate, right? So I catch a fish that's this big and I'm like, it's this big. Well, you do. Actually, I already do this. If you get the right angle when you're showing a fish on the camera, you can make it look. I've lot, seen that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Like, follow I'm, Josh on the. I'm a master. Any three is going to be able to nail that. So. Oh, I, I wonder why you always have a fish like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually five pound and they make them look thirty. So yeah, okay. So that's but that's something for the three, right? That's our that's our downfall. You know, if we're not aware of that, that actually, um, here's the great things. Here's my potential in terms of that personality. But actually, here's here's the downfall of that. Then there's well, not something. 
me on that is with that challenger one at one end that a life really well lived to someone who's prepared to challenge and stand yes. up for things was I think Gandhi. Yes. I mean, oh, that's great. You know, fantastic. And then look at the other end of it, pathologically, there's Hitler. Yeah, yeah. I actually think that was for the one, which oh, is the reformer, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, because you think about that, reform they're both reformers, right? Um, so again, it's two sides of the same coin. And what a tool like that can um, help us do, at least in my assessment, um, anecdotally, is be aware of our shadow side. You know, Jung, Carl Jung, um, a well-known uh, individual within psychology, you know, talked about this concept of the shadow side. Um, and, and again, we come back to this concept of dualism. When we conceptualize ourselves or we conceptualize other people, do we think of someone like that person there is all good and that person's all bad? Or can we conceptualize people, including ourselves, as a combination of good and bad? It just depends on the situation and how you... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that I, like, I think that for, for human flourishing and for uh, politics and, and um, the trajectory of society, I think that's just such an important concept for us to grow on. Is like when we look at the other, realizing that they're just like me, a combination of um, shadow and, and light and... Um, and, and seeing that shared humanity and that shared struggle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think they found that a valuable exercise. And then yeah. the, the second part to that is that you get your um, partner to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, depending on on the where you get the interpretation of that, there's some, some good places, but um, mm. one or two of them described how um, uh, a, a sort of flourishing and thriving interaction will go on between those different personality types and how what can possibly go wrong and when it can turn pathological, I found that very insightful, frankly. Yeah, yeah. So once you know um, uh, what your personality, and I think it's important to point out, you aren't your personality. You're more than your personality, yeah. but it's a it's a big factor. It's a guide to, to yeah, it's a guide. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. isn't yeah. yeah. Um, it's just it's just another tool that because we've talked about this concept of self awareness being absolutely key. It's another tool of, of, that helps us with our self awareness. So if you know your partner's number and your number, um, there's a tool there at the Enneagram Institute, and uh, you can go on that website, I think it's www.enneagraminstitute.com and you can look at those two numbers in relationship. It doesn't have to be a romantic relationship, it might be in a business relationship and they will articulate the problem points for those two personality types but also the growth points. And I think that's the really important thing is again understanding that each number has this potential, each personality type has a potential to be realized in a healthy way but also a potential to um, really become quite pathological. So again, if we can have an understanding of, and, that, and, and again, those potentials are impacted by our life, life events, right? If I'm stressed out or I'm traumatized or I'm avoiding um, the shit in my life, I'm going to start heading down the shadow path of, of maladaptive behavior and pathological behavior. Um, but hopefully with tools like the Enneagram, I can catch myself and go, oh, I, I'm starting to exaggerate. I'm, trying to, I'm starting to cover up my failures. I'm, I'm, I'm going in a path of disintegration rather than, than integration. Uh, it doesn't always work. Sometimes I like to go down that path for a while before I flip it around, even now. But um, I have been able to catch myself more as a, con as, a, as a consequence of realizing these are the ways I tend to, as a, as a three, I tend to undo myself and find myself in, a, you know, in my shadow self rather than my true self. You know? And that's something we'll talk to about it as well. You know, we've all got this true self. Um, none of us live out of that place every single day, but it's something that we can move towards, you know, and live, start to be, start to live more out of our true self than our false self or our shadow self. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and religion has traditionally taken a lot of that role to help people. But I think as society has changed, that's probably no longer the case. And there's other tools that are evolving to. Yeah. I think unfortunately what you've seen with a, a lot of the religions at least is, um, uh, they've missed those, uh, w what I've found at least looking at, um, some of the monotheistic religions and, and large religions around the world at their highest levels, a lot of them are saying the same thing, you know, which is you have a true self. There is a false self. Beware of the ego, you know, live, uh, forgive, have grace. Don't just live for yourself, you know, which is all really good stuff. But unfortunately, um, throughout time, we've had people involved in those or representative of those religions that haven't lived that stuff out. Right. Um, and that have, um, operated from a place of unhealthy ego and from shadow. And, uh, yeah, that's created a lot of distrust, like just as it would in an organization, um, a religion is just a big organization, right? And so if you don't have leaders of organizations or religions who like raw talks about the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is right. Knowing orthopraxy is right practice, right? So I know a lot of things about certain subjects, but I don't always practice them. Um, so I'm going to be limited. Same thing. You could know the right ideas. You could have lots of, you could be um, very orthodox, but if you're not actually practicing love and forgiveness and grace, then you, you're not actually going to represent those ideals very well. And there's going to be negative outcomes from that. And that's plagued religion. I think most religions um, throughout history. All right. Josh Darby. Yeah. Thanks for that. We're trauma, religion, politics. Yes. Yeah, Covering good ground, but uh, yeah, it's good. And uh, we'll put a few of those links up at Enneagram uh rules work and those sorts of things uh yeah yeah well i think one thing that's important to end on is like um we've covered a lot of subjects here and um who knows what it might have brought up for people but i think it's important to end these things by saying you know that concept of hope is really important my encouragement is to do what uh, i did back then and i still need to do at times and that's when you're going through difficult times reach out for help you know uh go and have a chat to your gp um and let other people in, you know, that when you're going through difficult times, it shouldn't be all up to you, you know, let other people in to help. You can call 1737 to speak to a trained counselor, right? So if there are some things that this has brought up, you know, talk to someone. If you don't feel like you can talk to anyone close to you, you know, jump on the text, jump on a phone call and, and yell out. Just look to connect, social support, um, have a chat to your GP and, uh, and, and I, I can promise you, at least from my experience, that there is a way out of those things, whether it's anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. Yeah. You've been listening to Prevention is Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, with me, Professor Grant Schofield. At Precure, we're developing a way to help medicine help change the world. We're filling that gap. We're helping train health coaches and mental health coaches. We're bringing short but effective behavior change programs over 29 days to you to help you learn for yourself and help others as well be healthier. We're trying to create a community of like-minded people, people like you who want to use the latest science and practice to change lives for the better. Join us at precure.com. Get involved in our communities. We'd love to have you along for the ride. Precure.com. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight